Welcome to the OIS Podcast, where you get candid conversations with the leaders and drivers of ophthalmic innovation. And now, here's our host, Tom Salemi. Hi, everyone. Tom here. Before we get into this week's podcast, I wanted to thank our sponsor, Shire. Shire has been a great partner of OIS. Always enjoy speaking with Bob Dempsey and, uh, and hearing more about the Zydra story. So thanks, Shire, for uh, providing support for this week's OIS podcast and for the OIS conferences. And we look forward to seeing you all in L.A. Now let's get into this week's podcast. Hey, everybody. Tom here. Welcome back to the OIS podcast. Believe it or not, we only have a couple of weeks to OIS at ASCRS. So uh, time is now to register. Go to OIS.net. Sign up to make sure you're with us there in Los Angeles. Certainly hope to see you there. Today, we're going to take a, a bit of a diversion. We're obviously still talking about ophthalmology. We certainly know what the O stands for in OIS. But uh, I spoke with uh, David Karak, who's the uh, Chief Executive Officer of the Lions Medical Eye Bank and Research Center of Eastern Virginia. And he is uh, this year's winner of the Leonard Heisey Award, which is presented by the iBank Association of America. And it's, a, it's an organization I don't know a great deal about. And while I know what iBanking is, I wasn't really clear as to what it does, as I sort of alluded to in this, uh, in this podcast. So David was kind enough to, to uh, take some time to, to share his story, but also um, bring up some, uh, some issues regarding iBanking that uh, hadn't really occurred to me, including why we've become better at uh, at providing uh, the 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 donated materials and, and tissues necessary for uh, eye surgery today it was so successful that we're we're exporting it. So it was an interesting conversation, and I'm very grateful that David uh, David joined us on the podcast. And uh, again, before I let you go, don't forget to go to ois.net to sign up for OIS at ASCRS in Los Angeles. Uh, go to OIS.net to check out the agenda. It's a terrific uh, terrific program put together by our co-chairs, and I hope to see you there. Now let's get into this conversation with uh, David Karak of Lions Medical Eye Bank and Research Center of Eastern Virginia. Well, Dave Karak, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Thank you, Tom. And uh, as I mentioned in the promo, you've won the Leonard Heisey Award, which is presented by the Airbank Association of America. So congratulations on that. Well, thank you. It's, it's uh, quite an honor. Thank you. So how did you find your way uh, into iBanking? Well, it's, um, uh, and that's how people do it, actually, is they find their way into it. It's <laughs> such a niche <laughs> It's such a niche uh, profession that it's not something that you really are formally trained for. Um, I, when in college, I was a volunteer at the what was then the Lions Eye Bank of Oregon. That was in the early to mid-80s. And then uh, when I graduated, I went back to Michigan, and uh, I got a job at the Tissue Bank in Michigan um, and helped them establish an eye bank. And uh, so I guess my, my formal career in eye banking uh, started started then in the late 80s in Michigan. And you're, of course, with the, the Lions Medical Eye Bank. And I, I, I know what an eye bank is, yet I don't know really what an eye bank is. What is, what is a, what, describe the Lions Medical Eye Bank organization. What does it consist of? How many people sort of work there? And, and what functions do you provide? Sure. Uh, the, well, 
an iBank, uh, its its function and and all iBanks in the United States are not for profits, and uh, so our function as an iBank is to provide people the opportunity to donate eye tissue, and uh, we do that by working with uh, hospitals and uh, long-term care facilities, and we are notified of every death that occurs. And then we uh, determine over the phone be suitable as as a donor, and uh, and then as an eye bank, we also through this process uh, provide healthcare professionals the means to to end blindness and improve sight. So uh, whether it's through research or actually through providing tissue for transplant. Uh, the iBank uh, works uh, very diligently uh, through quality control and regulations that are promulgated by the FDA, the iBank Association of America, accredits iBanks, and uh, some states uh, also have their own uh, regulations that iBanks must follow. And then the, the last thing really in general that iBanks do is, is we provide patients hope. Mm-hmm. We provide patients uh, hope of clear sight. And so the ability to, to provide a cornea uh, or corneal tissue for a transplant uh, where a person has uh, a, a clouded view of the world, or in some cases, no view of the world, and can have outpatient surgery to have that sight restored is, is really a, a special function of, of eye banking. So are you really in, in sort of the logistics, just getting the uh, – identifying that there's, uh, there's tissue available, there's an eye available, and getting it into the hands of the, the physician who can do the, the, the best job with it? Or is there infrastructure to yeah. what you do? Yeah, no, that, that's, exactly, that's exactly what we do, Tom, is, is, is we are an uh, extension of, of the uh, ophthalmologist and, and his surgery that he'll be doing. Um, we, we provide a, uh, a, a valuable medical resource, um, that is a gift, uh, from, from the donor. So yeah, our function is to, through many uh, hundreds, hundreds of, of steps, uh, from that first phone call over notified of a donor to recovering the tissue, to evaluating the donor and their history. Uh, to ensure that there's no opportunity for transmission of, of disease, to uh, storage of the tissue, to processing the tissue in the way that the surgeon wants it prepared for his specific patient, and then to uh, delivering and distributing the tissue. Um, yeah, it, it's uh, we do everything right up and until uh, the the tissue is implanted into the recipient. And how long have you been with uh, the Lions Medical Eye Bank? Hi, Tom. I started with the Lions Medical Eye Bank as their technical director in Norfolk, Virginia in uh, 1992. And uh, I became the executive director and CEO in 1999. So actually, this, uh, yeah, this, this is my 25th year with that organization. Wow. So... I have to imagine that in, with technology changing in many different ways, both in communications but also in, in uh, medical innovation, that 
your job or, or the way you do your job has, has changed along with it. How have things changed over those 25 years? Well, uh, so many things have changed. Um, the, I, I would, I'll have to, uh, refine it down to just a couple of things. Certainly the, like you said, the technology, the techniques, the surgical techniques that surgeons are employing now is so much different. Uh, whereas, uh, all of the cornea transplants that used to occur in the, uh, you know, from, uh, a decade to 15 years and prior were penetrating keratoplasty where the full thickness of the cornea was transplanted. And, and now the majority of transplant cases are doing endothelial keratoplasties where just the posterior portion of the cornea is transplanted. And certainly now, you know, surgeons are uh, implanting and transplanting just the different layers of the cornea can mm-hmm. be very selective. Uh, if a patient has a need for uh, refurbishing of the anterior cornea, then just the anterior cornea can be replaced uh, with tissue. And same with the posterior cornea. Uh, and also keratolimbal allografts that employ the stem cells around the limbus of the cornea uh, is a, a procedure that has come along in the past couple decades. Um, the One of the biggest changes, Tom, in, in the eye banking profession and therefore has helped advanced changes in uh, anterior ophthalmology and cornea surgery is the availability of tissue. When I first started in eye banking, the waiting list in the United States for a cornea could be upwards of six months or more. Wow. And now, now it's what we call scheduled surgery. Uh, if, you know, Dr. Smith contacts the eye bank and says, I'm going to need this uh, cornea of this kind of graft for Mrs. Jones on, you know, October 5th, chances are almost 100% that not only will we have tissue available for that surgery, but tissue that is, is very suitable to the patient. Um, whereas in, in back in, you know, quote unquote, the day, uh, patients actually sometimes, just like with organ recipients, um, had to come in immediately when they were contacted uh, because the tissue, number one, it wasn't preserved for very long. Uh, the preservation method now can can uh, preserve a cornea for upwards of, of a week. Mm-hmm. And back then, back then it was maybe 48 hours. And uh, so, and, and, but what has really driven these changes again is the availability of tissue. And that's something that, I have to tell you, I'm very proud of that eye banking has accomplished is going from having people wait for corneal tissue to the point where we are now and have been for almost 10 years, maybe, maybe 10 years, where no patient in the United States has to wait for a cornea. Um, we, in fact, uh, send excess tissue overseas. Mm-hmm. Uh, last year, eye banks sent um, uh, almost 30,000 corneas overseas uh, because we're doing such a good job of recovering tissue from people that are suitable donors. Hi, everyone. Tom here. Just want to take a quick break from this conversation to invite you to subscribe to our newest publication, the OAS Monthly. If you go to OAS.net, click the subscribe today button. Just give us your email. 
And at the start of each month, we will send you the OIS Monthly, which includes our Ion 5 wrap-up of the biggest news of ophthalmology from the previous month, the top-performing videos and podcasts of that month, and also, and most importantly perhaps, our exclusive report from our OIS Index. We're partnered with IQ Research, and its principal, Michael Lackman, who's been writing for us for a time, has done a very meticulous job uh, tracking ophthalmology's biggest companies. And uh, the index will show which companies are enjoying some tailwinds and which are enduring some headwinds. So we hope you sign up for OIS Monthly. Again, just go to OIS.net, click subscribe today. You can sign up for OIS Monthly and OIS Weekly. All you need to do is give us your email, and we'll make sure you get the news you need from ophthalmology. Now back to this conversation. So what can we attribute this, this success in, in, in having the tissue available when necessary? Is it an increase in, uh, in donors? Is it, a, is it just an ability to sort of, uh, again, mastering the logistics, knowing when a, an eye is available and when it's needed, or, or is it uh, a mixture of both? What, what, what can we uh, attribute the success to? Yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's rather a mixture of both, Tom, and the, uh, uh, the major thing that happened, though, is that eye banks began to recognize in the 90s that they weren't recovering all the tissue that they could be recovering. Uh, in 1968, the United States uh, passed laws and states adopted laws uh, called the Uniform Anatomical Gift Act, where people could uh, make themselves an organ and tissue and eye donor by indicating it using a what was then a donor card and then it turned into putting the indication on your driver's license and now uh, in modern times the indication is actually on a database that is maintained by individual states so in the early 90s uh, my eye bank the Lions Medical Eye Bank in Norfolk we started to recognize that we were not recovering tissue from all of the people who had indicated on their license that they wanted to be donors, that is consent for donation. And what the practice was in eye banking, and uh, it still is much the practice in Oregon, is uh, to contact the next of kin to get consent for donation, even though they actually already had it in their hands, mm-hmm. even though they knew the person had indicated they wanted to be a donor, and legally, that is consent for donation. So what we started doing at our iBank was uh, we would have the knowledge that this person wanted to be a donor, and we would get in touch with the family, and instead of asking consent, we would inform them of their loved one's decision and then go from there. And uh, at first, I, I have to tell you, it was it was looked upon by the transplant community, this practice that we were doing as very, very controversial and very much um, not paying attention to the family or the family's needs. Mm. And, uh, uh, and, and so we did go through some struggles there. And I will tell you that in the 90s, I did a number of presentations at the IBEC Association meetings about this practice and about our protocols and what we were doing. And there was uh, an incident that I recall very, very clearly, Tom. 
I was uh, asked to give a talk on on how we were doing this. This might have been, I think, 1994, 1995. And uh, as I was talking, some people that I very much respected and were leaders in iBanking got up and left the left the room. Wow. They didn't want to hear it. Wow. Yeah. And they were just very put off by it because traditionally it was always family first. Mm-hmm. You know, you don't do anything without the permission from the family. Well, what I was telling them was someone needs to champion for the donor. Mm-hmm. Here we are in the transplant community telling people we want them to make a decision about donation, which is not an easy decision for, for people to make. And to put it on your license, and we also tell them to, to tell people about their decision and everything, but then we ignore that decision when they die. Mm-hmm. And that, that didn't go over well. You know. And not only that message, but for me to tell them that we were actually recovering corneas based on the donor's consent and not the family's in, in those cases, now, if, if the donor didn't have an indication, of course, that's what we did. We, we got uh, consent from the next of kin. Sure. And, uh, but I can tell you at our eye bank today, uh, just over half of the tissue that we recover is done without consent from the next of kin because the person is a donor. Interesting. So what do I need to have my license to qualify? I have a, a heart with donor in it. Does that mean I'm going to donate? I, I would donate my eyes as well? It it does it, it actually it it kind of varies a little bit from state to state. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, some states say that that it's one hundred percent black and white. Either you're a donor or you're not a donor. So if it says on your license you're a donor, then that means you're a donor for everything, uh, for research and education, and for transplant and anything that can be used. In some other states, uh, very few, by the way. Uh, their online donor registries uh, will give a person a choice of what they want to donate. So, and that's part of the practice now too, Tom, is when we get that phone call and we're notified of, of a death, the next thing that we do is check online. We have secure access to mm-hmm. state donor registry, and mostly it's, it's operated through the uh, state's uh, Department of Motor Vehicles. And uh, and we can find out immediately if that person has made themselves a donor, and then we, we go from there. Interesting. Well, I'm in Massachusetts. I don't know if that gives you any insights, but it's, uh, it's obviously something I've always been a priority of mine, and you're right. If, uh, oh, it's, okay. It's, it's, uh, if I'm making that decision in life, then I would hope it would uh, be honored in death. So. Well, see, and that's exactly right. And that's what people expect, and... and you know, I went to, uh, I had an incident where I was being interviewed uh, for uh, donation, uh, um, Eye Donation Awareness Month, which is every March this month, by the way. Mm-hmm. And um, there was someone from the organ agency there as well. And this was back, again, this was back in the 90s. And the person interviewing us took out his license and said, well, you know, I'm a donor on my license. What does that mean? Just the same Thing that you just asked me and I said well that means that if you're medically suitable when you die that you will be it said from the eye banking perspective 
from my perspective, you'll be a, a cornea or eye donor. And then I turned to the person from the organ agency and I said, will he be an organ donor? And they stumbled and stammered and said, well, you know, we would need to talk to his family first. Hmm. Interesting. And, and that, of course, prompted him to say, wait a minute, are you saying that my family could trump my decision to be a donor? Mm-hmm. And, and she said, well, yes, that's actually what could happen. He said, well, then why am I a donor? You know? Yeah, <laughs> so, sure. So, it, and, and uh, uh, it, it's been a very interesting journey, Tom, this whole thing. And, and my hope has always been that uh, what that I banking can lead here and and improve the donation rates on the organ side as well. Interesting. Final question. I'm curious. Um, where we covered and focus on a lot of innovative therapies of the eye to, to help people restore their vision. Yeah. And do those, be it uh, implants or uh, IOLs or, or changes to the eye, does that uh, affect its? Uh, does it make it less viable as a as a potential donor? The more and more in, more and more intervention we have directly with the eye, is it uh, impinging on the supply because those eyes can't be used anymore? Well, that's a good question. Um, there are some uh, uh, therapies that that uh, will do that. Certainly the uh, implant of uh, stromal rings, for instance, mm-hmm. uh, would, would uh, rule a person out. Um, uh, IOL placement uh, does not necessarily rule a person out for donating a cornea transplant. Um, the laser procedures, um, again, it's a case-by-case basis. There are some laser procedures uh, that uh, would rule a person out for donation. Certainly back in early 90s when uh, uh, the keratotomies, the radial keratotomies and other things were, were popular there for a while. Um, mm-hmm. Actually putting incisions in the cornea, that, that ruled the person out. But again, the neat thing is, is that uh, even with these new therapies that kind of rule some people out, the, the cornea supply is good enough to withstand that. Mm-hmm. You know, we, we aren't uh, uh, losing the ability to restore sight to people uh, because of those innovative procedures. Interesting. And I know this, I said that was my final question, but I always end up thinking of one more. Is the um, sort of the regional structure of the eye banks, is that still necessary? Do you see any changes coming in? in I don't know if there'll be a consolidation of eye banks uh, now that it's easier to. to travel longer distances with, with tissue or is it still necessary for logistics to, to keep a regional focus on, on eye banks? Well, I'll, I'll tell you, that's an, that's another excellent question, Tom. Uh, I'm guessing you did some homework. Uh, the, the traditionally eye banks were very regional mm-hmm. and they had what were called, uh, service areas and, uh, they were, uh, respected boundaries, basically, um, for not only recovering tissue, but also distributing tissue. Uh, and iBanks have always shared the resource. For instance, uh, I remember very well when I started in iBanking, uh, you know, sending tissue across the country because 
uh, cornea was needed in, in California, yet my eye bank in, in Virginia, we, we didn't need a cornea on Wednesday, but we had a pair that were available from a donor. So, um, and, and vice versa. When we needed tissue, we had people we could call. Mm-hmm. But now, what, you know, the thing that's really driven change here again is the cornea supply. And uh, I, I can tell you that the membership of the iBank Association, uh, as far as entities and members in the EBAA are actual organizations, uh, has gone down quite a bit from uh, about 110 10 years ago to, I believe, 78 or 79 today. And the reason for that isn't because there are fewer establishments doing the, the iBanking. It's because of consolidation and because of uh, working together and formalizing relationships. Um, one, one great example of formalizing relationships and sharing tissue is uh, Vision Share. And Vision Share is uh, a large organization established in 1996, and it was actually incorporated in, in Norfolk. Uh, we're one of the founding members. And uh, the member iBanks of Vision Share work together to distribute tissue throughout the country. And we have our own uh, proprietary web-based uh, database that we use to, to make sure that tissue gets to where it's needed as fast as possible. Hmm. Fascinating. So you see, you see more of that changes, more of the changes like that coming in the future? Uh, yes. Yeah, it, it, it's, uh, it's not going to slow down anytime soon. Um, the uh, the availability of tissue continues to be high. Uh, demand for tissue is is somewhat flat, if, if maybe going up one percent a year. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, uh, so it's it's uh, it has become for a nonprofit, and I call it a grassroots uh, uh, profession. Uh, it has become somewhat competitive, and. Uh, the interesting thing, though, is, Tom, and I want to touch on this, is, is we don't need to touch on competition by price mm-hmm. because uh, the cornea is one of very few things that is reimbursed by private insurance at 100% allowable rate. So uh, the insurance and Medicare, CMS, uh, every year has approved uh, corneal tissue for transplant as a pass-through, which means that it is reimbursed at the same rate that it's billed. There aren't very many things, in fact, just a handful of things, procedures and materials that are reimbursed at 100%. But when uh, the the surgeon files a claim after doing a cornea transplant, they simply include the iBank invoice and they get reimbursed 100% of the value that that is put on that invoice. Interesting. That makes perfect sense. I mean, it's... uh... It's it's a big difference. <laughs> the ability to see versus not to see has a enormous impact yeah. on a person's life. So that, I'm glad that's uh, that's in place. Well, terrific. Well, yeah. it's been a, a great uh, a great glimpse into the uh, iBank world, and congratulations again on uh, winning the Heise Award. I yeah, well, thank you, Tom, and and I just want to say that uh, the uh, the. Uh, award. It was it was announced at uh, our our leadership meeting at the fall meeting. Um, 
in uh, in November, and I was very surprised. And to have a a ballroom full of my peers and uh, surgeons who I very much respect and uh, have learned so much from over the years to to have them, uh, uh, you know, give me a attaboy means <laughs> a lot. I bet, I bet. Well, enjoy the uh, enjoy the event, and uh, I, I hope we get to meet someday. Very good. Thank you, Tom. And that is a wrap. Dave Karak, thanks for joining us on the OIS podcast. Thanks for your insights on the world of iBanking. And, of course, congratulations again for winning the Leonard Heisey Award. Thank you, OIS podcast listeners, for joining us. If you wouldn't mind doing us a few small favors, Give us a ranking on iTunes. It helps people find the podcast. Tell your friends about the OIS podcast if they love ophthalmology and innovation as much as you do. Finally, shoot me an email. Let me know what we should be talking about, who I should be interviewing, or uh, just ask a question or say hello. We'd love to hear from you. My email address is tom at healthogy.com. Finally, please join us in LA. Go to ois.net for OIS at ASCRS. We'll uh, try to have another preview of the program in our next OIS podcast, but uh, don't just wait for that. Once you sign up now, go to ois.net, sign up for OIS at ASCRS, and we will see you in Los Angeles.